good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Ellie Jacobs, and this week I'm joined by Maggie Moore. Frank Spring is once again on the road, or at least that's what we've been led to believe. We all know that it's a bunch of lies, though. Um, but y'all should know the drill by now. Please rate and review us uh, wherever you listen to this very fine podcast. And shout out to my friend Aiden, who has reviewed the show. You're the best girl. Love you. Um, also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that ship with a P as in praline. Uh, you can follow me at Maggie M012, Ellie at, at Ellie Jacobs, and Frank Spring at, at Frank Spring. So uh, now that Ellie and I are fully without adult supervision, um, we decided that we would bring on a lovely guest to help keep the two of us in check. Yeah, we're very excited about this. Uh, he's, uh, I think, Maggie, I think you were our first repeat guest. Uh, Chris is now our second repeat guest, uh, and he, he's terrific. So Chris Liu is going to be joining us uh, in just a couple seconds. Uh, Chris, for those of you who uh, haven't listened to the show for a long time, we also just reposted the episode we did with him as our first repeat episode a couple weeks ago. Um, but the first time he joined us over a year ago, and this should put everybody in their wayback machines and give you all kinds of you know, motion sickness, it was the day the original indictment against Michael Flynn was handed down. Uh, that's how long ago and you know, 87,000 years in human life ago this happened. Uh, but just to go over Chris's really impressive bio, he's currently the Teresa A. Sullivan Practitioner Senior Fellow at the Miller Center at University of Virginia. He was Deputy Secretary of Labor in the Obama administration. Uh, before becoming the Deputy Secretary, he was the White House Cabinet Secretary and Assistant to President Obama. He was the Executive Director of the Obama-Biden Transition Project in 2008. Before that, he was a Legislative Director and Acting Chief of Staff to then-Senator Obama. He was Deputy Chief Counsel at the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. He is currently also a Senior Strategy Advisor for a uh, corporation called Fiscal Note. He is a member at large of the DNC. And he was also a law school classmate of President Obama's. Uh, Chris is really terrific. Uh, we're really, really lucky that he found us and decided he wanted to join us uh, uh, on taking ship and then be willing to come back after because the first time wasn't scarring enough. So uh, without further ado, we're going to get to Chris uh, in just two, two, two shakes of a salt shaker or whatever the saying is. No one says that. Well, they should. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris Liu is now with us. Uh, Maggie, Chris, where do we want to start? Well, I feel like there's going to be some folks who need a reintroduction to Chris. So Chris, why don't you um, give us a little bit primer on what you're working on now and what you want our fair listeners to know about you. Well, after a 20-year career in politics and government, I am uh, off in the world, sort of in the private sector. I spend part of my time at a tech company called Fiscal Note. Uh, I also have an affiliation at the University of Virginia, where I'm a senior fellow, and then I basically do a lot of political work, some consulting work, and, and just generally a rabble rouser. Rabble rouser used to be in my Twitter bio, so I too feel <laughs> a kinship to fellow rabble rousers. Um, no, that's great. Um, so I feel like, I mean, besides if there's any other intro things, Ellie, that you are interested in that we would just go ahead and get started? I think we can just dive in. I will say that uh, I recommended Fiscal Note to someone. I don't know if they actually signed up for the service, but they were really impressed with it. Well, we do some great work on that. I'm happy to talk about that, but that could be for another time. Also. Yeah, I mean, if you want to do if you want to do the elevator pitch on what Fiscal Note is, why not? Sure. Fiscal Note is a, a five and a half year old tech company that merges artificial intelligence uh, with government data. 
essentially, we help large organizations, whether it's companies, trade associations, nonprofits, um, gather and manage uh, federal, state legislation, regulation, increasingly international data uh, to help them understand how government is affecting their work and how to better manage it. So, um, and, and most notably over the last six months, we've done a couple of major acquisitions. We now own CQ, Congressional Quarterly, as well as Roll Call, the iconic paper that covers Capitol Hill. We are now uh, a media company as well. Awesome. All right, Maggie, where did we want to dive in first? Yeah, so um, I figured that, um, Chris, with um, your background uh, with the DNC, that we could do a little bit of a broad overview, sort of introducing what the DNC is um, to listeners and also, frankly, to Ellie and myself. Like, we think that we know how the DNC works, but not unlike when we had our dear friend Xander on the show to explain how the law works, um, I think having a little bit of a primer on um, how the DNC operates and how it sits in relationship to um, candidates that are running for office in 2020 would be super helpful. Um, so, Chris, help us understand what is DNC and how does DNC work? So, the DNC or the Democratic National Committee is essentially the governing body for the Democratic Party in the United States. Uh, it is led by a chairman, uh, that's Tom Perez, the former Secretary of Labor. Uh, there is a full-time staff at the DNC that manages everything from uh, fundraising to research to technology to press operations. And it's essentially the umbrella organization for uh, the, we don't want to say 50 state parties because there's actually D.C. and the territories. I think it's 57 state and territorial uh, parties. And um, uh, so the, the chairman manages uh, the, the DNC but they're also DNC members. Um, DNC members uh, can be elected uh, generally by their state. Um, each state has a contingent of, of members to the DNC. Uh, various constituency groups also have DNC members. Uh, and then the chairman uh, selects, I think, 75 at-large members of the DNC. And I, in 2017, was made an at-large member of the DNC. So the easiest way is when you hear about those Super delegates. Uh, I'm a, a DNC superdelegate. So super delegates are obviously have obviously been a big talk of politic democratic politics for the last couple of years, partially because we can't not be living 2016 over and over and over again like some kind of Groundhog Day nightmare or Russian Doll. If anybody's seen that on Netflix, Russian Doll is better than Groundhog Day. Ellie, I saw that tweet and I firmly disagree with you. All right, we'll fight about that later. Um, but. Uh, uh, the superdelegates, um, it's uh, elected members of Congress, uh, former presidents, a whole bunch of other important people, but they've downgraded their importance for this up for the 2020 election, right? Can you explain what the thinking was around that and how it actually is going to work in, in function? Right. Uh, so in order to secure the nomination for the party, you need to have a majority of the delegates at the convention, uh, which will, will be held in the summer of 2020, um, you know, so the Iowa caucuses, for instance, um, have a certain number of delegates that are up. And if you, uh, you know, win a, a majority of the, the vote in the Iowa caucuses, you'll get a majority of the delegates. In addition to those delegates that are elected through state caucuses and primaries, there's a whole nother group of quote unquote super delegates. 
Um, these are not only the at-large members of the DNC, it's about 400 some people. As you said, it's members of Congress, it's uh, former presidents. I think governors are super delegates as well. These people can make their own decisions about who they want to support, independent of whatever constituent group you represent, whatever state you're from. Uh, and the controversy over the last, it's not just 2016, but I remember this back in 2008 when I was with Obama, uh, is who are these, we say unelected people, but the truth be told, members of Congress and governors obviously are elected by somebody. Uh, but essentially, who are these people um, who haven't been chosen by, uh, through a normal process, and why are they dictating who the nominee should be? Um, it, it's important to understand that whether you're talking about 2008 or 2016, the last two times we had contested primaries in our party, superdelegates have never changed the outcome at all. Hillary Clinton won the most delegates uh, through the, the caucuses, through the primaries, and she had you know, the majority of the superdelegates in the same with uh, Barack Obama in 2008. That being said, uh, there has been a legitimate concern about the power of these superdelegates. And so essentially the way it will work is that on the first ballot at the convention, superdelegates essentially don't count. Uh, it, it, I, it's hard to do this over a podcast, but to do math, but essentially uh, the denominator will change in the first ballot. And then if no one uh, gets a majority in that first ballot, then the superdelegates all come back and on the second ballot and can cast the vote. We can still endorse people, we can still um, you know, give money, we can do all these things, but essentially for the first ballot purposes, superdelegates don't count. Got I don't it. That's... know why the system was put in place in the first place. It shouldn't be that well, hard to explain. Well, no, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you exactly why this happened. So um, the history of presidential primaries is sort of an interesting one. If you go back pre-1968, 1972, pre-1968, essentially it was a lot of people in the proverbial smoke-filled room who were delegates, who weren't elected by anybody, and would essentially vote uh cast their vote for whoever they thought should be president, in part because of the reforms that came um, 1968, 1972 in the Democratic Party and really in the Republican Party as well. We then moved to kind of this free-for-all system where every single delegate to the convention was essentially somebody chosen through one of the primaries and caucuses. Um, there was a sense uh, that that was a little bit too much of a free-for-all and that quote-unquote party elders should play some role in the process. So then they started adding them back into the process. So it's kind of like this pendulum that goes back and forth as to what the exact role of uh, party leaders should be uh, in the process. And so I think this is just another swing of the pendulum back to more of a direct democracy. And I suspect we'll go through this for a couple of cycles, and then we'll go back to the way we had it a couple of years ago. Back to the smoke-filled rooms, let's do it. <laughs> Only if I get to be in that room. I want yeah, to be right? there. Great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Chris, let me ask this question about the DNC. So if the DNC, if I give money to the DNC, how is that different than me giving money to the DCCC or the DSCC or to an individual campaign? What do all those acronyms mean also? Yeah, well, the and, and so Democratic so Senatorial Campaign Committee, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Democratic National Committee, and then there's like three other ones also, I think. But we'll stick with the big ones. Well, and, and, this is, and this is an important thing to understand, is that the role of the national parties has 
functionally changed over the last 10 years, in part because of campaign finance restrictions. Uh, it used to be that you could give almost unlimited dollars to a party. Uh, the party chairman, um, the party leadership had a lot more power. So they were able to control the resources and then dole them out to whatever state party they wanted or to congressional candidates they wanted, in part because of campaign finance restrictions, also in part, frankly, um, just the proliferation of different groups. The DNC and frankly, the RNC have a lot less power than they used to have. And so, um, and I think that the question you ask is an important one because it raises the broader question, what is the role of a national party in a world in which you've got a campaign committee for Senate candidates, congressional candidates, governors, attorney general, state legislative races, mayors have their own party. Each of those uh, 50 states have their own uh, party that they take money from. Uh, and then you add on top of that, every congressional candidate, gubernatorial candidate, presidential candidate, and then you add, at least in the democratic ecosystem, all of the resistance groups that have, prop, have cropped up as well. Um, and so I think under Tom Perez, what he's really been trying to figure out is where are the places that a national party can be most effective? What are the efficiencies? Um, it, it, for instance, um, if you're going to have a research operation that does operation research on Donald Trump or whoever the Republican nominee will be, it doesn't make sense to have five different organizations doing that. That ought to be centralized. Or if it's voter data, um, that ought to be centralized as well, which is one of the things that's happening right now. Or in terms of a press operation. Uh, so, or, and yes, how do you do that in a way that still allows, you know, a hundred flowers to bloom, a thousand flowers to bloom around the country? Um, you know, and so this, I think, is one of the challenges because I think a lot of people frankly, would prefer to give their money to an individual candidate who they know or to, a, to you know, the DSCC or DCCC because they feel like, okay, that money just goes to congressional house races or to Senate races. Why do I want to give to the national party? And I think this is sort of a larger existential question that both parties are facing right now. Speaking of both parties, a uh, two-part question then for you. So um, do the RNC and the DNC operate under the same rules? Like, do they, as, go as, as governing bodies, do they function in the same way? Because uh, I'm mostly curious about uh, uh, former, um, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld being a challenger uh, to Trump and what that would actually look like at a convention. What would it take to actually get on there uh, to, to, like, to run against him, essentially? Well, they essentially do operate in the same, they, they, under, they operate under the same financial and legal rules. But what you see that's interesting happening right now um, is that we at the DNC have essentially taken uh, the position that we will be impartial. We're not going to pick and choose among, you know, the 10 announced candidates and probably 10 more that will announce uh, very soon. The RNC has definitely taken a position that Donald Trump is our nominee. We're going to support him. And in many ways, they're trying to jigger the rules of their convention uh, to make it more difficult to have a primary challenger. Now, that's not unusual. I, you know, I suspect uh, in 2012, uh, there wasn't, you know, nobody challenged Barack Obama for, for, to be renominated as president. Uh, but I suspect that the party, you know, almost always supports the incumbent president. 
but so the basic answer is yes, the, the parties operate under the same rules. Uh, but it, how you deal with the nominee is likely going to be different if you're uh, if your party controls the White House. Honestly, that sounds like a circus, though, that I'm like very on board for just in terms of like having some great TV. Like I love the balloon drop, but would absolutely love a primary challenger. I think that would be hilarious. Well, you know, and it is interesting because I think a lot of the camp, uh, conventions these days have become a little too scripted. And, you know, you, you, you don't really have much drama by the time you get to a convention. And um, I'm still, I'll say, skeptical that we will get to the 2020 Democratic Convention without a clear nominee. I do think it will sort of shake out that somebody will be clearly out in front. Uh, but, you know, if it doesn't, it's always fun to have a little drama. But I think in general, parties have preferred having more scripted affairs than anything that might be unpredictable. Well, understandably, so do, so do news directors, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, there I, I, at the uh, Republican convention, there was the big fear about what, what Cruz was going to do during his speech, and he didn't actually endorse, and everybody was, you know, apoplectic about it, but then it just turned out that he, you know, turned tail like every other Republican at this point. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, and look, there, there, there are huge incentives to fall in line behind the nominee. And I was there in 2016 and, you know, there was, there were some Sanders people that, uh, uh, delegates that were un visibly unhappy and, and, and uh, creating a little bit of ruckus on the floor. But in the end, Senator Sanders himself was, was very enthusiastic about uh, Secretary Clinton. And so a lot of the times the delegates will take the cues from their, um, uh, the person they're supporting. Right. I think, I, I think 92 also, there was a lot of stuff between Jerry Brown and, and Bill Clinton's people that letting when Brown was going to speak and if he was going to endorse. And so it seems like that there is often something like this and it's almost unusual to not have at least some manufactured drama. Yeah. And it's in the goal at the end of everyone, every convention is to come out unified. Uh, and it, and it happens, look, you can, you can script a unified convention and it looks great on TV, but if there's still hard feelings behind the scenes, uh, that could eventually affect, you know, enthusiasm in terms of fundraising or in terms of uh, GOTV efforts. But having, at least putting on a good show of unity is, is certainly a prerequisite. Right. All right, Maggie, have we done cover the DNC? I think that we have. I mean, I feel like so many of the conversations that people are continue to have around the DNC are so 2016 focused that I like didn't want to have that conversation today. So the primer, at least for me, was very much appreciated. So I make, I like have my head screwed on right as we, you know, drive towards the primary. So I think we're yeah, you know what, and, I, and I think this is one of the challenges that Tom Perez has had over the last couple of years. How do we, um, how do we turn the page on 2016? Because we've exactly. got a much bigger struggle ahead of us. Uh, and I think the superdelegate thing which I think created the perception, and I was, it's a mistaken perception uh, of unfairness in 2016. Uh, we put that behind us by, by minimizing the role of the superdelegates. Um, he, uh, Tom has asked uh, that of all DNC party officials, all staff have to be impartial as well. That goes down to like, uh, in your cubicle at the DNC, you can't even have a bumper sticker expressing any kind of support uh, for, you know, a candidate. Um, it's obviously in the communications, the emails, And so they really are trying to be impartial. They've already announced in advance what the debate schedule is going to be so that everyone clearly knows what the rules are uh, up front. And so I think we will put this behind us, but we'll see what happens when we get to 
uh, get deeper into this uh, into this primary content. One of the other changes that have happened is a lot of states have switched off the caucus model. A lot of the places that were caucuses in 2016 have now yeah. straight to because Bernie did, uh, Senator Sanders did well in caucus states, but Hillary Clinton still beat him by three million some odd votes across the country. That three million number just kind of hangs around her neck in different ways. But um, so changing it to more of a straight up and down vote should also uh, eliminate some of the, but only if we did this, this, or this, we'd get the outcome that we wanted for people that aren't happy with what the conclusion is. Right. I mean, look, it, it's hard for me as an Obama person to get too upset about caucuses because right. our organized <laughs> prowess in 2007, 2008 is what allowed us to win Iowa, which then became the springboard for the rest of our campaign. That being said, you know, look, there's something pretty wonderful about caucuses. You, you show up at one place, you have conversations with your neighbors and you discuss the issues and it's really kind of um, a more participatory, well, in some ways it's more participatory form of democracy, but then you understand uh, the logistics of a caucus where you actually have to show up at a certain time uh, at a certain place. You have to stay there for the entire night because there's, at least in Iowa, there's this weird thing where if your candidate doesn't get a certain percentage of the vote, uh, you then, and he, he or she is not quote unquote viable, uh, the other campaigns that are viable can lure you over to your to their side. Uh, and so in other words, you're basically stuck at the caucuses for an extended period of time. It could be hours. Um, and so and you obviously can't vote early. Um, there's no absentee. Um, and so while those people that are able to participate, I think have a very full experience of what democracy is like in a community, uh, it does exclude a lot of other people who for a variety of reasons can't show up. Right. And there yeah. was talk that they were opening it up to, that they were going to try to open it up to virtual caucusing this year mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, and I don't know exactly how that's going to work, but I think at least allowing an option for people who can't be there, there's some absentee mechanism yeah. to, um, to participate, I think is important. I think it is too, uh, especially just in terms of access. Like, do you have a, like, in case you need childcare, in case you can't get off work, you know, all of those. Yeah, people those work things. the night shift. Exactly. Um, but what's a funny story about caucusing, actually, a friend of mine who just got a new job at the time uh, in 2016, just got a new job, and she lived in a very small town in Maine, like everybody knows everybody kind of town. And she was the only one that sh she was aware of that wanted to caucus for Bernie. But like the members of the board who had just hired her, were caucusing for Hillary and she was put in a very uncomfortable situation to have to caucus in front of community members and like people who had just hired her and she was worried it was going to like put her in lower standing with people who had, you know, put a lot of faith in her to run this community program. So I was like, caucusing sounds like very high stress personally. Um, so I'm glad I've never had to do that. <laughs> but I'm from Oregon. So we've only voted by mail. I've only ever voted by mail in Oregon. So I think everyone should just do that. Well, I was going to say, I, you know, my I'm in Seattle right now. In Washington State, it's all done by mail. I, I frankly don't understand understand why everyone doesn't vote by mail. It, just, it makes so much more sense. It really does. The participation is so much higher. It's so easy. I can ask questions. I can take my time with my selection. It's great. So yeah, it's, it's silly. The fact that like it took this long for a state like New York to actually increase uh, early voting is ridiculous. Oh my gosh! I know. Right. Um. Honestly, I could talk about voting access all day long, but I won't. It's a passion like, of mine, but we, I'll, we'll come back and do that. Perfect. Excellent. That'll be, that'll be for next time. You can be our first like triple <laughs> guest. 
Maggie, you want to turn to current events? Yes, I would love to because there's been like a little bit of stuff that's happened in the news this week, right? Yeah. Just like a yeah. little. <laughs> yeah. I haven't watched. <laughs> uh, well, I haven't watched. I went back to my regular policy of not watching the president speak live. So that was good for me during this um, announcement of um, a national emergency about the border situation, which I think is a bit akin to that time in the office, how when Michael just declares bankruptcy, that's a little bit what this feels like to me. Um, But honestly, it's what what is what's upsetting is to is to see like just how like blatantly horrible this kind of a this kind of a situation is. So I don't really know if I have a point uh, or like a direct question to ask unless Ellie does because I'm mostly just like it, talking about this makes my brain like melt out of my ears. Yeah, I and mean, it's when he said what was the line he said that kind of destroyed his whole court case is like I didn't have to do this. I, I didn't have to do this, but I could do it much faster. Yeah, when in my head that like when my toddler looks at me and I know she's got a dirty diaper, like that's what she's saying <laughs> in her head. I know I didn't need to do this. I just wanted to do it faster. <laughs> well, it's also interesting. One of the comments over the weekend that didn't get enough attention was from the acting Secretary of Defense, Patrick Shanahan, who, when asked about this, said, oh, we haven't, this is after the emergency declaration was now, Shanahan basically said, we haven't determined the medical, uh, the, the military necessity for um, this declaration. So a declaration that ostensibly is based on national security that would draw military funds, the Secretary of Defense says we haven't determined if there's a military necessity. So you can count that all of these different statements will likely be used in the briefs filed by the plaintiffs against this wall. In addition to the fact that border crossings are at a low, uh, drugs aren't coming across the border, they're coming through ports of entry. Uh, you know, 10 other statistics that we can all name along the way uh, that, uh, that undercut this. And so um, it's interesting because Presidents in general have wide latitude when it comes to national security and courts are generally fairly deferential to them on this issue. But so I think he clearly can declare uh, the emergency, whether he can shift money around, I think is a much less clear issue. And what I also find is just the hypocrisy. You know, I went back and looked at the statements that uh, Republicans made the number of times they called Obama an imperial president, a tyrant, uh, king, all these different things on actions that frankly were uh, far less sweeping than what Trump is doing here. Yeah, and I actually so- wanted to, I specifically wanted to ask about that because a lot of, a big deal has been made or at least certain corners are trying to make a big deal of the, of the idea that, oh, this isn't a big deal because President Obama used to do it all the time. Um, and then part of the response is, well, Obama couldn't legislate because McConnell wouldn't let him legislate. Um, where in your mind do you see kind of that line of demarcation between, uh, let's say, for instance, um, one of the environmental rules that President Obama pushed through, um, just, you know, off the, because I'm a little bit more familiar with those, um, you know, pushing through like the mercury rule or uh, the cross-state air pollution rule um, versus not being able to get it through Congress. And then when the right turns around and says he was an imperial president then, but now it's fine that Trump is doing it. Is there a legal distinction in your head or is it also a a, a gigantic political distinction? Well, I mean, look, the the rules you mentioned all went through notice and comment rulemaking. uh, Essentially what it means is that an agency, EPA in this instance, proposes rules. uh, They're put out for public comment. 
uh, generally kind of 90 or 120 yep. day comment period, the entire public can weigh in and submit comments. Uh, those have to be considered uh, by, uh, by the agency in drafting a final rule. That final rule, when it's finally promulgated, uh, can be challenged in court, um, as both the rules that you, you, you mentioned were challenged in court. Uh, and it's all bound by this complicated thing called the Administrative Procedures Act, which um, determines how agencies, um, how courts uh, look at agency action. So, so they, you may not, people on the right might not like those environmental actions, but we followed every step of the process to do that. What's notable here is that you have an example of the president going to Congress asking for money, Congress saying no, um, and then using a fake declaration to go specifically against what the what Congress allowed them to do. There, I don't know if you saw, it's not that you would be looking at Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet. Um, he had this kind of goofy tweet over the weekend where he said, well, we basically had his, we were stuck with your Obamacare, so now we're gonna do this to you. And as everyone helpfully point out, the Obamacare was passed by the House of Representatives, by the Senate, signed yeah. into law. So that's actually how you do make changes through laws, through regulations. You may not like them, you may not like the outcome of them, but that's the way it's supposed to happen. You don't do it through an emergency declaration where there is no emergency. I find it remarkable how willing he is just to show utter ignorance about anything having to do with, I don't know, the Constitution to the entire public day in and day out. All right. So we, I want us to turn a little bit to 2020 because um, that's what everybody likes talking about. But before we do, uh, let's play out this um, um, emergency declaration a little bit. So there are going to be multiple lawsuits. It sounds like the Attorney General of California is filing one tomorrow. Um, there's already been suits filed by some of the landowners in Texas, I believe, which, I mean, never mess with anybody that owns land in Texas. That's like <laughs> that and don't fight a land war in Asia are like the two rules that everybody Russia. should. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but uh, so that's one route this, ha this is going to go. But then Congress can pass uh, resolutions opposed to the declaration and then Trump can veto it and then Congress can override the veto. Do you think that's what's going to play out? I mean, uh, I think it was Mulvaney yesterday was, or Stephen Miller and his geniusness was saying that Trump is planning on vetoing anything that comes out of the Hill. Yeah. So uh, under the, um, the emergency act, uh, the, 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 the piece of legislation that authorized or set forth how a president can declare emergencies, Congress can essentially pass a resolution that disapproves of the emergency declaration Almost certainly it will pass the House fairly easily because it'll be a straight party line vote. And, and I'm even fairly sure that there are a number of uh, Republicans in the House that would probably vote for it as well. I mean, if you are a principled conservative, what Trump is doing should really bother you here. Um, and then it'll go over to the Senate. What is interesting is that you've seen a lot of um, Republican senators express concern. Again, it's you know, the Murkowski, not only just the Murkowski's and the Collins of the world, uh, Senator Ron Johnson of, of Wisconsin over the weekend uh, expressed concern about this. Um, it's, you know, with Republicans, you can never really tell. They love to express concern and then they end up supporting Trump anyway. Um, I do think in the end, a majority of the Senate 
uh, will disapprove of this, but whether it is a veto-proof margin, I think that will be the question that I sort of doubt that it will be. And it's six, is it 67 or 60? Uh, it's 67. Uh, yeah, it's two thirds. Okay. Uh, no, 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 wait. Well, that's actually, a, that's a noble thing. As to, we haven't had a veto. Well, that's actually a noble thing. We have, I think part of the problem is we, uh, the Republicans have not made some veto anything, which is why we haven't had to do an override. I believe it's two thirds. Let me see. I've got, I've got all the information on the history of the world right here. Uh, say if only we had a device through which we could only it looks, for this answer. It looks like 60. Oh, okay. It all looks right. like 60. I keep thinking that like the uh, override the president with two thirds majority vote in both chambers. Oh, two thirds is 67. Then. Yeah, it might actually, it may be 67. I don't know. Okay. That uh, will be tough. All right. We will put these, we will put the final answer in the notes, but <laughs> let it be known that the arcane ways of the Senate is uh, lost on all of us. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I, I'm old enough to remember when presidents did that when Congress considered itself a co-equal branch of government and would pass legislation and then force the president to veto it. That just hasn't been a thing during this yeah. administration. I have no recollection of that <laughs> ever being the case. So what was that time like? <laughs> so uh, in our intro, I mentioned uh, before you joined us, I mentioned that the last time we had you on was the day that uh, Mueller handed down the indictment for Mike Flynn, which was like, when I was thinking about that, I was like, that was such a long time ago. And yet, so it really wasn't, yet it really wasn't that long ago. But unless there's something burning about the Mueller investigation that, that you feel uh, isn't being covered or that you want to talk about, I thought we'd turn to 2020 if you're ready for it. Let's turn to 2020. Plus, Flynn, that was like 20 indictments ago. So. Right. <laughs> uh, we had a whole conversation about if there was a difference between a senior person and a very senior person, because there were two okay. different descriptions in the, in the yeah. indictment. Exactly. All right. So Maggie, you want to turn to 2020? Yeah. Um, so as I'm sure many folks are aware, we are still like, what, over a year away from the first primary vote. So it's never too early to keep talking about this until we're dead inside. So um, I think the first question then for you is um, how many other folks do you think are going to declare and when do you think that's going to happen? I think, look, I, I can't even keep track of where we are now. We'll probably <laughs> run 10 um, I'm going to say you'll see another half dozen. Um, I I don't think the for some of them um, I think they have more uh, they have more lag time before they have to announce. If you're a, and and I think really um, the limiting factors are your ability to sign up campaign operatives and build your network support, uh, and then the other limiting factor is money. Uh, if you are Joe Biden, if you're Bernie Sanders, uh, there's a large group of campaign operatives you can tap from. You've got a wide base of support and fundraisers. Uh, if you're Mike Bloomberg, for instance, uh, money won't be an object for you as well. Um, I think people like that federal work, I think, can wait probably a little bit as well. Um, for some other people, um, you probably have to announce sooner rather than later, just because uh, there are only enough big bundlers in the Democratic ecosystem. You And there are only enough experienced people who know how to run a campaign in Iowa or New Hampshire. Uh, and you don't want to wait so long that all of these people get snatched up. Right. I think that's, you know, that, that's sort of where my gut is. Uh, my gut is still telling me neither Bloomberg nor Biden are going to run, but uh, I, you know, that's anybody's guess. My, my idea on Bloomberg not running is sort of the way that um, 
they've been leaking out that he's working on this massive data project and that $500 million that he's going to spend on it is the floor, not the ceiling, kind of indicates that, to me at least, that he's looked at it. He doesn't think he has a way to win, but he knows that he can be a kingmaker and be incredibly influential. At least that's the way I'm looking at the, what Bloomberg's doing. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of it will depend on whether somebody in the race is talking about the issues that you would have talked about. Um, I, so I'll give you an example. Um, th- there are people who, everyone sort of occupies a different lane. Many lanes sort of intersect uh, each other. But, you know, if you're Bernie Sanders, I, I'm frankly surprised by this weekend's reports that he has recorded a potential announcement. Me too. You know, uh, because I, I sort of see a lot of people occupying that lane. I see Elizabeth Warren occupying that lane. And I think, frankly, it's a testament to Sanders' campaign in 2016 that the issues that he talked about, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's income inequality, whether it's free community colleges, these are actually fairly standard positions within the Democratic Party now. And so while he has the organization, he's got a large following, his message has essentially been taken over by a lot of other candidates. Again, also sort of say with Joe Biden, I think in many ways, Biden's message of appealing to white working class voters is sort of a similar message that a Sherrod Brown, for instance, might preach. And so I think if Sherrod Brown jumps in, there might be less of a reason for a Biden to jump in. Although I think Biden is slightly different because I think he does bring a level of foreign policy experience that's unmatched in the field at the moment. He has a record of working in a bipartisan way. He's known as more of a centrist. Again, whether that has enough appeal in the party at this point right. is unclear. And I think similarly with Bloomberg too. Um, and so, you know, at this point, there's really no reason for these people not to jump in. Um, I, I, I'm not, again, we may end up having 20 candidates. I don't think we'll have 20 by the time we get to Iowa. I think it'll be significantly pared down just because there isn't enough money to sustain right. Money or staff, really. Money or staff, exactly. Especially when you're splitting this, the constituencies that you're talking about. So like folks that would have all voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016 are, can now have a menu of options or exactly. uh, maybe are a little bit more excited about Warren than they are about Sanders because, like you said, that message that he had has gotten spread over t- um, to a bunch of different candidates. Um, I'm also wondering if how Howard Schultz's rollout has gone has scared anybody away. Because um, when you're talking about, like, constituencies being split, also, who is Howard Schultz's constituency? Like, who? Well, and I, exactly. And I, one thing that I've been looking at um, in general is, the campaign rollouts of everyone. Mm. And I've been saying this, that doing a campaign rollout is essentially the easiest part of your campaign. You have to stage a nice event. And even if you're Amy Klobuchar, you figure out a way to, to survive if it's in the middle of a snowstorm. And then you have to go out and do a lot of interviews. Now, again, none of this is really easy, but that's the easiest part of the campaign. The hard part is when you have to go to every single coffee shop in Iowa, New Hampshire, and you're being trailed by people looking at every one of your words and you're trying not to make a gap or when you get to the debate, then, you know, you're kind of arguing over silly stuff because most of the candidates agree on the same things. Like, and so you've seen people who have done really good campaign rollouts and I'll say Kamala Harris did a has done incredibly well. Um, I think uh, Pete Buttigieg has gone out of the box fantastic as well. Uh, Julian Castro did a nice one. Klobuchar did a nice one. And then you've seen other people who I think, frankly, have stumbled a little bit. Um, and I think, you know, that may be a sign as to how strong uh, their organization really is. 
Yeah, I've been so so impressed, same, uh, with Harris's rollout and just really underwhelmed with uh, Gillibrand, whom I adore. I think she's wonderful, uh, but I'm a little lost as to where she is. I think she's sort of like getting lost in the shuffle and Warren too, a little bit. I've been, I've been surprised by that. No, and I think you're right. I mean, I think, look, there's, there's not one lane for any of these candidates, um, it, but uh, I don't know that there are enough lanes for all of the, the different candidates right now. And I think, I think with the two people that you mentioned, I, I, I don't think they've gotten out of the box as strongly as I know that they are as candidates. Now you could certainly recover. I mean, but um, I think it's an early first signal. Um, and I think, you know, when everyone is looking for something to distinguish themselves, um, and then obviously fundraising, some of the early fundraising numbers from Harris in particular have been really impressive. So. Right. Yeah, and and you know, the Hunger Games have just begun. So we yeah. got plenty of time. <laughs> and it's no secret that on this podcast, we are, fran- we are fans of Mayor Pete, although we have not endorsed anyone. Um, nor will we, I don't think, because who's also who cares, (laughs) but, uh, Chris, I, I, one of the numbers in the polling that, that has really stuck out to me, there was a Monmouth, uh, Monmouth poll that came out and said that 56% of primary voters, uh, will vote for someone that they don't agree with on the issues if they think they can beat Trump, or I don't exactly remember the exact wording, but it was something like that. So on the one hand, I was very heartened that it was 56%. On the other hand, I was horrified that it was only 56%. Because it also seems to me like one of the big obstacles um, is getting back the people who voted for President Obama and then voted for Trump. And it kind of comes down to this question of, do you appeal to the base or do you figure out some way to appeal to broaden the base? Right. And look, it is natural that in a primary, at least in the Democratic primary, people will move to the left and then move back to the center again. I think in the end, when you look at it, essentially 90 some percent when you go to a general election 90 some percent of democrats vote for the democratic candidate 90 yeah. percent of republicans vote for the republican candidate where it really comes down to independent voters and i think that's sort of the interesting part um people forget donald trump beat hillary clinton among independents um now what's also important to understand is that the democratic base vote was probably slightly deflated from where it had been uh, in 2012 and 2008. So you need to keep your base fired up and you need to win the independence. And so I'm confident that any Democrat coming out uh, will keep uh, the base enthusiasm high. I mean, I think we saw that in 2018. I think that's going to be like rocket fuel in, in 2020. And then the question is how well you appeal to the middle. Um, you know, I, I think people talk a lot about, you know, whether Democrats have moved too far to the left. And what's interesting is when you take the labels off some of the proposals, whether it's Medicare for all or whether it's higher wages, they're basically positions that poll incredibly well among the overwhelming majority of people, whether it's climate change, whether it's gun control. Um, these are things that most Americans like. Uh, the question, I think, for Democrats will be in this primary, um, how do you continue to make these positions um, as broadly appealing as possible and not kind of go down these rabbit holes where we're just kind of scrambling over each other to move to the left. Yeah. Um, Maggie, do you have any other questions on 2020? Uh, I don't think that I do, but, you know, as more candidates come in, as more flame out, I'm sure we'll have you back on to to talk a little bit more about the Democratic Hunger Games, as I I now call it from now on. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing. At this point, um, I, I think the way to look at this, again, is look at fundraising, um, look at organization. Um, and then what is the path to victory? And, uh, you know, the, when you look at this, there are four early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, 
South Carolina. And then we start moving through a series. There's not one Super Tuesday. There's multiple Super Tuesdays. And California is voting much earlier this year, which is California like a huge California is like in uh, uh, early March with Massachusetts. And then there's like this Midwestern sort of Super Tuesday that's got like Missouri, Michigan, and Ohio a couple weeks later. So I look at these candidates, I think to myself, um, you don't have to win all four of the early states, but you probably have to figure out how you can win one of those early states. Um, it's hard to imagine you could lose badly in all four of them and still, you know, be viable going into that first Super Tuesday. And so, you know, again, we've been talking about what lane do you fall into? And it's very possible that you could have, if you're a Bernie Sanders, you're a Joe Biden, yes, you could probably lose those first four. And you could have a big enough support where you could go to a state like California um, and try to rebound. The challenge, though, is if you've got Kamala Harris in California, and if she locks that up, um, then your path to victory, you have to keep putting off uh, the place where you sort of make your stand. Uh, and that, I think, gets harder and harder and, frankly, much more expensive. Yeah, I think, you know, to me, the most important lane is can you win? <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Maggie, do we wanna, we've only got a couple minutes. We want to turn to our patented lightning round. Patented lightning round, indeed. It is my favorite. Um, so they're pretty much the same question. So hopefully, or not hopefully, you remember your answers from last time. And I actually um, don't, Maggie, so we'll see if I give the same one. Perfect. <laughs> Great. It'll be, it'll be a quiz. Um, okay. So um, what book, uh, music, band, movie, TV show, uh, basically any piece of culture that you'd like to recommend uh, for our listeners to um, dig into themselves? Well, since I'm a political junkie, um, people always ask me what, what TV show is most like politics. Um, it's not House of Cards. Um, it is some combination of the West Wing and Zeke. Um, it, it, working in the White House, it was the idealism of the West Wing and the insecurity of Veep. And so uh, I'll do that. <laughs> ah, the best two things. Yes. I'll do that as a shameless plug because I know Beef, the last season, is about to start uh, next month in March. Yeah, and then we can all just be confused between what's Veep and what's the Democratic primary. Exactly. All right, uh, the second question, uh, a food or drink that you've had recently that you'd recommend? Uh, well, I, I've been just guzzling Coke Zero on this, um, on this podcast. I basically drink it like water. <laughs> I, if, that's, if that's too much of a shameless plug... Um, uh, that I can give something else, but I—I yeah, I, 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 I honestly think it's what you said the last time, also, which is totally <laughs> fair. <laughs> At least there's consistency. Standing by your convictions—that's what we respect. Well, uh, I will tell you, uh, Maggie, that you see in my Twitter profile uh, that I was a Coke Zero drinker, and I kept doing that, thinking I might get an endorsement deal, and I didn't. So I finally took it off. We're trying to get Casper mattress money. It's harder let's than it looks. Let's get that Casper. Let's get that Coke money. <laughs> I feel like I—I I agree. Um, okay, so next. Um, would you consider a hot dog to be a sandwich? Yes. Really? Especially if, it, especially if there are condiments on top of it. Strong. No hesitation. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. All I right. Mean, a, a sandwich is, it's got meat. Uh, but here's the thing. I would actually tell you, if you told me a sandwich that has, did not have meat on it, I'm not sure I would call that a sandwich. So, mm, like I, interesting. Like it, okay. It, All right. a, a meat and two pieces of bread is, or kind of a half folded bread. Right. All right. All right. Our last question. Um, in the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something. What's one organization you recommend supporting and why? So, I, you know, I won't give one organization. What I will tell you is uh, support local candidates and not just 
congressional candidates. Um, really, um, you know, uh, state legislatures, mayors, um, at least in the, in the progressive, among the progressive, um, we have taken our eye off the ball of state and local races for far too long. Um, and it's one of the reasons we are, the position we are in terms of gerrymandered districts, uh, in terms of, of trying to claw back uh, control of state governments is because we have focused only, only on what happens in Washington and not at the state. Um, and frankly, a lot of the really bad laws, whether it deals with choice issues, uh, gun control, um, are ones that come out of the states. And so we need to start winning those seats back, uh, in particular, uh, as we move into 2020 and, and another round of redistricting. All right. That's good advice. All right. Uh, Chris Liu, thank you so much for joining us again. This has been an absolute treat and we look forward to bothering you again in the future to, to come on, to come aboard uh, Salty Jason's Revenge for, for a, a three-peat performance. Um, well, thank, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to do this. All right. Terrific. Maggie, do you want to take us out quickly? Sure. Um, well, if you like this episode and you would like other episodes going forward, please rate and review us. It makes it one easier for other people to find the show and two, it makes me feel better about myself. Um, so please, uh, leave us comments, rate us anywhere that you, uh, listen to this fine podcast. Uh, please be sure to follow us at, at taking ship and that ship with a P as in parsley. Um, you can follow me at Maggie M 12 Ellie at, at Ellie Jacobs. Frank Spring at Frank Spring. And Chris, where can we follow you? Follow me on Twitter at ChrisLu44. And if I don't get a lot of extra followers because of this podcast, I'm going to be a little upset. So please Honestly, I will be too. So do as the man says. <laughs> All right, Chris, thanks so much. Maggie, thank you so much. Uh, and with that, since Frank is not with us, we will not dare uh, take ship without him because uh, he is our coxswain and we need him <laughs> before we can do anything else. So with that, we will just, we'll just break from here. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.